Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Criminal Discourse Podcast. This is Wendy and Trish. We're back with another case, this time from Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. Before we get into that, though, we wanted to remind you, you have three more days to use our Manscaped coupon code. That's CDP20 for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. If you didn't get Manscaped for your significant other for Father's Day, that's all right. You still might need to get them a special gift down the road. Get it before this coupon code expires on June 23rd. That's right, because you get 20% off and free shipping. Can't beat it. Can't. So we want to take a moment and thank everyone that has reached out to us with feedback on cases that we've done. We've gotten some interested feedback on YouTube. We had one lady reach out about her involvement with William Trickett Smith. I'm just going to say you dodged a bullet there. And to all the others that have reached out and joined us on Instagram and Facebook, we really appreciate it. Also the case suggestions. So if you'd like to reach out to us with just letting us know what you think about an episode, or a case suggestion, or just to say hi and introduce yourself. You can do so through a couple of ways. One is through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes and the resources that we use to bring you the episodes to give credit where credit is due, and our contact page. There's also Facebook, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Insta at Criminal Pod, Twitter at Criminal Pod, and our YouTube channel. Yeah, and this was actually a case suggestion. When I joined the podcast, one of the first questions I asked is, what do the listeners want to hear about? And Kimberly Dots, this Clearfield County case is one of them. Yes, this came from Carrie H. She also made the case suggestion for Pamela Sue Rimmer, who we covered the John Yaunt killer in that same area, Clearfield County. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into it. Let's do it. Losing a child to murder is unthinkable. A parent's worst nightmare. A child being murdered by their friends is even more shocking. Kimberly Dotz's so-called friends ended her life on Mother's Day 24 years ago. While two of the people who were involved are behind bars, their community is still processing the tragedy and an important question, how do we punish kids who kill? On May 19, 1998, it was an unseasonably hot Tuesday for the search party combing a wooded area in central Pennsylvania, United States. The Clearfield County spot, known as Gallows Harbor, along the west branch of the Susquehanna River, is popular with hunters, campers, and teenagers. But on that day, the locals weren't looking for a party or a trophy catch. They were searching for 15-year-old Kimberly Dots, who was last seen in the area on May 10th, Mother's Day. A few teenagers did find Dots's body in Gallows Harbor that day, partially covered with branches, leaves, and twigs. They assumed it was Dots. Her body was in the third stage of decomposition and unrecognizable after nine days in the elements. The group of friends she was last seen with were already questioned about her disappearance, but this discovery turned interviews into interrogations, especially since one of them, 18-year-old Aaron Straw, discovered Dots's body. Straw revealed a shocking series of events that started with a sleepover and ended with a brutal murder. I didn't mean for Kim to get hurt, he told police, just to scare her. Straw was homeless, had a one-year-old son with an ex-girlfriend, and quit his job at a fast-food cook within the past month. He was the eldest of five children, two of whom were adopted by other families. And when Straw was 13, he left his mother and her live-in boyfriend to move in with his step-grandmother. While he admitted to participating in the events leading to Dots' death, Straw was reluctant to take full responsibility. He blamed his 16-year-old girlfriend, Jessica Holtmeyer, saying, Jesse would not listen to anybody and she had to kill her because she didn't like her. Straw's step-grandmother empathized, 
saying that Jessica sometimes had control over him. Police brought Holtmeyer in for questioning the next day. She had a reputation among her peers. She liked horror movies. She tried out for the football team. She got in trouble for smoking and skipping class, and she wore a nose ring. Like her boyfriend, Holtmeyer lived with her grandmother, who insisted, quote, she cares for people. She has never hurt anybody. Other family members agreed that Holtmeyer was nonviolent, emphasizing her church activities. She was an altar girl and a youth group member, and the way she helped her handicapped uncle. Straw, on the other hand, painted a more sinister portrait of Holtmeyer as a bully who bragged about arson and animal abuse. Holtmeyer wasn't willing to take full responsibility for Dots' murder either. However, Straw's confession made her sound not only capable of it, but eager for the opportunity. Two similar but critically different stories began to emerge. During a pause in Holtmeyer's interview, the police officer who escorted her outside made small talk by asking about school. Holtmeyer's response led to a break for police and her immediate arrest. She said, quote, I go to Clearfield High School, or at least I used to. When I get nervous and excited, I black out, and people tell me things I did. I'll probably spend the rest of my life in jail, end quote. Oh, you have the right to remain silent. (laughs) That's a tough one. Straws and Holtmeyer's stories did agree on one thing. Others participated in Dot's murder, too. By the weekend, five more individuals, four of them minors, were facing homicide charges. All of them were present when Dots was tortured. All of them helped cover up the crime. All of them gave different versions of what happened, and all of them pled to lesser charges in exchange for information that put Straw and Holtmeyer behind bars for life. So let's unravel this tragedy by returning to Mother's Day weekend in May 1998. The Dots family moved to Kerwinsville, Clearfield County, which is a town of about 2,600 people, in January that same year. This is part of the State College or Penn State region of Pennsylvania, northeast of Pittsburgh. It's home to Lockhaven University, but it's otherwise known as rural and blue-collar. It is also an economically depressed region with a high crime rate to go along with it. In a documentary on this case, Clearfield is described as a lower-class type of town. A lot of parents work and have to work as many hours as they can possibly get just to get by, and a lot of kids just run around. Everybody usually ends up on drugs or in trouble. That's actually from Kimberly's brother in the Killer Kids documentary that we link in the show notes. That trouble that those kids get into is often as serious as murder, and this is one of several teenage homicides in the late 1990s, including the 97 murder of a 15-year-old, the 98 murder of an 18-year-old, and the 1999 murder of a 19-year-old. We link those in the show notes as well. But this particular case stood out, with coverage reaching international news outlets, and I think you'll soon see why. Kimberly, Kimmy, Joe Dots, was born April 13, 1983. She was the middle child of Jody and Richard Dots, who married in 1980 and are still together. When Dots died on May 10, 1998, she was in the 8th grade, and she was still new to her school. She was also described as overweight and having a learning disability, which made her a target for bullies. She frequently babysat her sister, her younger sister, and she loved playing Barbies with her. The naive, sweet-tempered Dots also loved animals and going to church. On Friday, May 8th, 14-year-old Dawn Laniger invited Dots over for a two-night sleepover with a few other friends. Dots's family was excited that she was finally starting to fit in, and her older brother happily took up babysitting duties that weekend so she could go to the sleepover. From this point forward, no two accounts of what happened that weekend are exactly the same. 
I think this is important that from this this moment on, to, there's a different version depending on who you ask. Lanager's friends called themselves the Runaway Gang because they were planning to run away to Florida that weekend. Dots's family doesn't believe that she would go with the group to Florida, but her younger sister reported her coming home briefly on Saturday and telling her, I'm running away. In addition to Lanager and Dots, the gang included 18-year-old Aaron Straw, his girlfriend, 16-year-old Jessica Holtmeyer, 17-year-old Clint Canaway, 16-year-old Patrick Lucas, and 14-year-old Teresa Wolf. Dots's 24-year-old cousin, Tracy Lewis, joined them to furnish rides and alcohol. Two men in their early 20s, friends of Lewis's, also hung out with the teens that weekend and provided the lift to Florida, but they apparently weren't involved with Dots's murder or cover-up. All of these people were invited to this two-night sleepover? Or just like the minor children? Dawn and Kimberly were really the only sleepover people. And this is sort of a party that evolved over the course of the weekend, as I understand it. As I already say, I don't know any parent that would... <laughs> I'm like, um, no. Quite a large sleepover. Well, both age genders. range. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and genders. Yes. Early in the weekend, before they had a ride lined up, a few of the teenagers stole a car for the Florida trip. And then they crashed it. After this, they walked to Holtmeyer's house. Some recalled that Holtmeyer didn't like Dots and was upset that she was tagging along. But others said that Holtmeyer didn't know Dots prior to the sleepover and was indifferent. At some point, the group hitchhiked to the Gallows Harbor area. There, they looted the camping trailers, looking for road trip supplies like money and alcohol. You know, the stuff you need. <laughs> Stealing a dog, rope, and some sparklers as well. They vandalized the campers too even flipping one over. On Sunday, as the gang waited for their ride, they passed their time with a dangerous initiation ritual. So Gallows Harbor got its name from local lore about being the site of hangings. It seems that this inspired the teenagers to create a noose from their stolen rope and hang it from a tree. By most accounts, each gang member put the noose around their neck, while some say it was only three of them, and perhaps it was only dots. Depending on who you ask, either wolf, straw, or Holtmeyer actually fashioned the noose, while it was either Lewis or Holtmeyer who looped it around Dots's neck and dragged her around the clearing. One of the teenagers said they interfered at this point because Dots was crying and afraid. Either right before or right after this, depending on who's telling the story, Dots had placed her head in the noose as it hung from a tree. Lewis might have yelled, yank it, prompting Straw and Holtmeyer to pull Dots off the ground or onto her tiptoes for approximately 20 to 30 seconds while she cried, or long enough for her to start convulsing. Either nearby trucks or an approaching four-wheeler caused them to drop Dots, choking and crying, to the ground. And Lewis is her cousin. Lewis is her cousin, and an adult. This is when everyone but Straw, Holtmeyer, and Wolf left the area, and a distressed Dots. When the coast was clear... The remaining teens coaxed Dots, who was eager for social acceptance, back into the noose. They say coaxed. We don't know if it was coaxed, do we? All agree that Straw replaced the rope over another tree and tied one end to a rock. Straw alone, or Straw and Holtmeyer, again, depending on who's telling the story, yanked the rope again and hung Dots until she convulsed and then lost consciousness. Straw said Dots's lips were blue and she wasn't breathing. And that's why he threw a log on her stomach, which had her flailing and gasping for breath. He said he attempted to relieve the pressure of the noose by burning it off of her neck. Wolf and Straw said that's when Holtmeyer picked up a four-inch thick, basketball-sized rock 
raised it above her head, and hit Dots in the face with it at least two times. Wolf retrieved the rest of the gang, and they all worked together to hide Dots' body. As the sun set on Mother's Day 1998, Holtmeyer hitchhiked back home. The rest of the group caught their ride to Lakeland, Florida. Not knowing their daughter was never coming home, the Dots family filed a missing persons report, and the Clearfield community launched a search effort. Now, was Lewis there, her cousin there, for these final acts? Or had you mentioned that they heard some vehicles, so they all took off, Mm -hmm. and then some came back? Did all of them come back? They all did return, yes. Okay. And her cousin, Tracy Lewis, was in the group that went away for a little bit. So it was Aaron Straw, Jessica Holtmeyer, and Teresa Wolf who were there when Kimberly actually died. And they all tell a different version of the moment of death. Straw and Wolf both say that Jessica ultimately picked up a rock and bashed Kimberly's face. Jessica Holtmeyer says, I blacked out and they're saying that's what I did. So here we go. (laughs) Okay. Now the police have quite an investigation on their hands to figure out what happened here. So police did learn early on in the investigation that Kimberly Dots and the group of friends she was with were soliciting rides to Florida. They asked around town. They figured this out pretty quickly. And the group returned by the following weekend. After Dots' body was discovered, Aaron Straw accused Jessica Holtmeyer of targeting Dots in a thrill kill. So remember, Aaron Straw is the first one brought in for questioning because he led police to the body. Once the rest of the gang were interviewed, another motive developed. Dots was murdered for threatening to back out of or reveal their plans to run away. In this version, Dots' cousin, the 24-year-old Tracy Lewis, instigated her death. Dots had told on Lewis once before for providing alcohol to minors, so the idea that she would tell now wasn't a stretch. Over time, more details emerged, pointing the finger squarely at Holtmeyer. Some say that during Dots' hanging, Holtmeyer said, snitches get hurt, or that's what happens to snitches. Don Laniger, the one who invited Dots to the sleepover, said Holtmeyer laughed about the killing and later said she wanted to, quote, cut her up, scatter her all over the woods, and keep one of her fingers as a souvenir. She said they watched the movie Scream together that weekend and, reacting to Drew Barrymore's hanging death in the opening sequence, recalled Holtmeyer saying it would be fun to hang someone. Laniger's murder charges were dropped in exchange for that testimony. Straw also agreed to testify against his girlfriend in exchange for his death penalty charges being dropped. Holtmeyer and Straw were the only individuals who went to trial for Dots' murder. Holtmeyer went first after her lawyers unsuccessfully sought a transfer to the juvenile system. Understandable. There's a murdered teenager here. The district attorney publicly stated that he was seeking the death penalty, which would have made Holtmeyer Pennsylvania's first female and third minor to receive a death sentence. The Dots' family advised against the death penalty, but not out of sympathy. When you're on death row, you're there so long with nothing to bother you, Dots's mother said. In jail, Holtmeyer will be with the murderers and rapists. We thought the death penalty would be too easy for her. And I'm going to say that echoed the town's sentiments <laughs> from what I've read. <laughs> The official autopsy says Dots died from repeated blows to her head from a rock. But the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy testified that by the time she was bludgeoned, Dots was dead or in the process of dying due to the hanging. Holtmeyer's attorney argued that the teenagers who testified against her were, quote, liars who traded outlandish stories for lesser charges. Did any of them take a polygraph? Ooh, this I don't know. A polygraph is not mentioned anywhere. I'm just curious, like if you're trying to figure out like who's telling the truth, who's being deceptive, I would think just kind of 
not that you can use it in court because you're getting all these varying stories. It didn't seem in all the articles I read, the fact that the stories were different was never mentioned. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Let alone questioning the differences or polygraph testing anyone. We have a lot more to this story, but we are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor with a special offer for our listener. Here at Criminal Discourse, we are excited to share our new partnership with Manscaped. What is Manscaped, you ask? Manscaped is a male grooming company that delivers the right precision tools so that a man can safely manscape. They do this by custom engineering and specifically designing products that are both hygienic and safe to use on one's family jewels. So to share with you all some firsthand knowledge about these products, Manscaped sent us their performance package to have the men in our lives try them out to give you an honest review. So my husband, who you've all heard me refer to before as our tech support here at Criminal Discourse, was impressed with the Weed Whacker, which is the nose and ear trimmer. He said that he liked how it handled, especially since he didn't have to manipulate it around to make sure he got everything he was trying to trim up. He said it was quick, efficient, plus easy to clean much better than the trimmer he currently has. So don't wait. Go to manscaped.com and when you put in our code CDP20 for Criminal Discourse Podcast 20, you will get an additional 20% off. Oh, and did I mention the free shipping? Wendy, how about your husband? While my husband really liked everything from the top down, it started with the packaging and ladies, we might not realize it, but our men like gifts too. His review of the Lawnmower 4.0 was a revolution if you've ever tried grooming down there without something like it. He says, smooth sailing, guys, no fear. The best part was the built-in light that makes it easy to see what you're doing. Plus, he's sure to be purchasing more of the Crop Preserver, the anti-chafing ball deodorant, in case you're wondering what that is. If you have difficulty figuring out a gift for that special man in your life, look no further than Manscaped, the perfect gift that will upgrade their scaping experience and have their mountain oysters feeling revitalized in no time. Don't wait. Check them out. And don't forget to use our code CDP20 to get an additional 20% off plus free shipping. This ad was sponsored by Manscaped. Now back to our episode. In January 1999, after less than a day's deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict on one count of conspiracy to commit homicide, two counts of aggravated assault, and two counts of conspiracy to commit aggravated assault. So now at 17 years old, Holtmeyer was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Straw's trial began a few months later, with his attorney claiming that Holtmeyer was the true villain. He argued that she made Straw hang Dots, and that Dots would be alive if Holtmeyer hadn't bludgeoned her. After deliberating for 75 minutes, the jury convicted Straw of the nine counts against him, including first-degree murder. He also received a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. On the verdict, Dots's mother shared that it provided the family with, quote, a lot of closure. It didn't take Aaron Straw's life, but it will make his life a living hell. Again, as it probably should. Prior to both trials, per their plea deal, three of the other teenagers involved were sentenced to six months of juvenile detention. That's it. This includes Teresa Wolf, who tightened the noose around Dots' neck and witnessed her murder without interfering. Don Laniger, the one who invited Dots to her demise, got only probation, the lightest sentence of all. Tracy Lewis, Dots' cousin, pled guilty to reckless endangerment and conspiracy to commit aggravated assault. It looks like she served five years of a five to 20 year sentence before making parole, but she had a prior record as well. 
That was for child abuse of a live-in boyfriend's child, nothing to do with this case. Back then, and to this day, the Clearfield community is conflicted over whether justice was served. Some believe Jessica Holtmeyer deserves a second chance, noting her traumatic childhood and accusing Aaron Straw of controlling abuse. They feel the runaway gang are more responsible for Kimberly Dotz's murder than they admitted, throwing Holtmeyer under the bus to avoid serious consequences themselves. News reports at the time recognized the uncomfortable ethics surrounding so-called killer teens. They questioned why two young people were in prison for life while their co-conspirators were free from detention before the first anniversary of the murder had even passed. Locals are still distressed seeing the runaway gang in Clearfield raising their own families. Still others wonder why more individuals who were involved never went to trial at all. I think there they're referring to the other parties who were around that weekend who took them to Florida, those individuals. The Dots family suffered an immeasurable loss that reverberates to this day. Referring to Holtmeyer's family, Dots's mother says they still have the opportunity to go to the prison to hold her hand and look at her in the visiting rooms. I can't do that, and I'll never be able to do that. She says only one of the teenagers, Clint Canaway, ever apologized to her family. Now, it was on the Montel Williams show. I'm not sure the age of all of our listeners, but Montel was very big back in the 90s talk show, Mm -hmm. (laughs) daytime talk show, lots of these reuniting and and big heavy hitting issues. Dots' mother was not receptive to Clint's apology on national TV. I told him, I do not accept your apology now. He was there with Kimmy that day and did nothing. And how old was Clint at the time? Because I know there's a range of ages here. He was 17 on that older end. Holtmeyer appealed her sentence and filed petitions in 2001, 2002, and 2010, but all were denied. In 2012, a Supreme Court ruling in Miller v. Alabama changed the way juveniles could be sentenced. And in August of that year, the court stayed Holtmeyer's petition for the first time. Another ruling in 2016, Montgomery v. Louisiana, reinforced that it was unconstitutional to sentence a minor to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And it allowed the decision to apply retroactively. So Holtmeyer amended her petition to include this new ruling. Hers was one of 479 cases in Pennsylvania of minors serving life without parole sentences, the most in the country. That floored me as a Pennsylvania resident, how many killer kids we must have. Well, I remember when we covered the case of Lori Show and her murderers that were convicted. One was 17 years old at the time, Tabitha Buck, and she was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And when these cases came to the Supreme Court, of course, they had to change them. And there was a vast number there. And in Pennsylvania at the time, if I'm remembering this correctly, was like, okay, going forward, we'll we'll make sure we don't, you know, we'll give them the possibility of parole. And then I think the ACLU had to get involved. And it was basically like, no, no, you got to go back and look at all 479 of those individuals sitting in prison right now and resentence them. Mm-hmm. And they eventually got around to doing just that. But oh, it yeah. took court proceedings to make that happen. What's up, PA? Mm. Well, yeah, that's what happened to Jessica here as well. So it wasn't that case was in 2016, the Supreme Court ruling, and then it wasn't until July 2018 that they got around to Jessica Holtmeyer's case. They reviewed it and resentencing was ordered. And in December of 2018, the court resentenced Holtmeyer to 35 years to life, including time served. That means she's eligible for parole in 2033 when she'll be 51 years old. 
Holtmeyer, of course, appealed her new sentence, claiming that she was given a mandatory sentence without proper review of her case's specifics. So she's arguing that the shocking nature of Dots's murder overshadowed her factual role in it, and that Dots' family's victim impact statement at her original trial weighed too heavily on the judge's current decision. Prison employees, specialists, and other experts supported Holtmeyer's case for re-entry, including her psychologist, who said that the extreme trauma Holtmeyer suffered from her boyfriend Aaron at the time made her susceptible to automatic obedience, and that she was now fully rehabilitated. So automatic obedience is basically you're abused, traumatized to the point that you will do anything that person tells you to. While the court acknowledged her progress and Holtmeyer's low risk to public safety, the judge ultimately denied her appeals and upheld her sentence of 35 years to life in a September 2020 ruling. In light of the resentencing, an online petition to never grant Holtmeyer parole has amassed over 1,400 signatures. The Dots family is among those who never want Holtmeyer to be released. Dots's grandfather says, It's not justice for someone killing somebody so brutally to get off on parole. I will do everything I can to stop it. Dots' mother agrees, adding, We went in front of 12 jurors, and they convicted her. She got life with no possibility of parole, so there should not be a possibility of parole. The Supreme Court ruled that Holtmeyer's original sentencing was cruel and unusual punishment, and what occurred to Kimberly Dots, to her family, and to that Clearfield community was certainly cruel and unusual as well. So how can we achieve justice in a case like this? As I researched this case, I could imagine the families and the community's desire to deliver devastating punishments. I could imagine local law enforcement's pressure to deliver swift justice. I could imagine those teenagers' fears as their secrets unraveled and their desperation when they were given an opportunity to save their futures by turning on an unpopular classmate, especially since her boyfriend already had. Maybe they were telling the truth but I can imagine a lot of different scenarios here. None of us can say what we would do in the exact same circumstances, but I do have some questions. Why was law enforcement unconcerned about the variations in the teenagers' stories or how they changed over time? If Tracy Lewis instigated the teenagers to retaliate against Dots for snitching and she was the adult in the situation, why wasn't she held more responsible for her influence? How did Jessica Holtmeyer become the one who murdered over snitching on the gang's runaway plans when she didn't even go to Florida? Isn't it suspicious that the teenagers who pinned this on Holtmeyer were the ones who fled after the murder? They were together for a week without Holtmeyer with the opportunity to conspire. Do we accept that Holtmeyer's statement to police was an admission of guilt? Would it have been harder to charge everyone involved as severely as the emotions of this case demanded unless the investigation narrowed it down to a single mastermind and her bullied minions? Maybe the runaway gang stories are the whole truth and the right people are serving the right sentences according to their responsibility for Kimberly Dotts' murder. What do you think? Only the eight young people in Gallows Harbor on Mother's Day 1998, I think we'll ever know for certain. That is true. I Again, I kind of go back to you had all of these stories. And even if you weren't going to polygraph all of them, why wouldn't you polygraph Holtmeyer or Straw? I mean, those are your two main suspects that you're taking to trial to see at least who's who is being deceitful or not deceitful. It is a sad case all around because at the end of the day, a 13-year-old girl was brutally murdered for no reason. None. There's no good reason for that ever. It's inexcusable and somebody has to be punished. I do wonder if they if they tried to figure everything out, how long it would have taken 
to suss out the individual stories and individual culpability. And if given the age of everyone and the part that they all played, if that might have meant no one was going to jail for life, that's maybe the impression. And I'm not saying that Holtmeyer didn't do what she did or that her and Straw shouldn't be in prison. I'm not saying that the people who aren't in prison ought to be. I just don't really know because I'm not the police. It's not my job. <laughs> it just doesn't seem when you read the the comments online from people in the community, the family members, the extended friends and family, you get that sense of just because people are behind bars, we still don't feel resolved like like things are finished here. Well, I think like you said that those other individuals that were involved that got lesser sentences or probation are still living in that community. They're still, they're raising families now. And I can see as, as especially Dots' family members and extended family members and friends, like, how is this okay? Well, and Kimberly Dots's mother says that quote that there was only one of them who ever apologized to me. That was within the last couple years. So there's also this sense of just because people have served a little bit of time for this, no one's showed remorse for what happened to Kimmy. So yeah, there's still this emphasis on how horrible it was that she died and how horrible Jessica Holtmeyer is. And I, I think a lot of that gets channeled into this is why she should be in prison forever to pay for this horrible thing. And maybe she should, but I, I just think there's a lot unresolved with it. When did you find anything regarding Lewis and how her relationship with the family? I mean, this was her cousin. <sighs> there's actually in the Killer Kids documentary, for example, where they interview the family. They don't mention her being a family member very much. That sort of comes up in some articles and then goes away. You know, she's I think it was like a, a second cousin. She's not you know, she's a little bit more extended family member. But there's not, depending on what you take in, the article, the source, the documentary, there's a, a little bit different focus and variation on, on the details that we choose to include and we don't, depending on whose perspective we're telling it from. So yeah, Tracy doesn't always pop up as a family member, depending on the resource. But she was a family member. In some she sure way. was. She, second cousin or not, she was family. She was. And some some stories, she did, she was not the one who instigated the snitching. It was Jessica. In other stories, like, for example, the document, the Killer Kids documentary, it was her who initiated this, you know, Kimberly's going to snitch on us, let's get her. But they don't talk about her being a family member, but they do bring up the fact that she instigated this whole snitching narrative. In other versions, Jessica was the one who brought up the snitching plot. I am surprised she did not get as much time as she did, only because she was the adult in this terrible weekend. She was the adult. And she provided, I mean, at least corruption of minor charges for providing alcohol. There's the question of what would these kids have done if they weren't under the influence of alcohol, possibly other drugs? Who was giving those substances to them? That, to me, is part of it, too. <laughs> yeah, It's very sad. I don't think it's fully resolved. I don't know if it will ever be fully resolved, but you at least want to get it right. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you, Carrie H., for this episode suggestion out of Clearfield County. Thanks, Carrie. It was a sad one. Yeah. <laughs> None of the cases we cover are happy, but I mean, yeah. So if you guys like this episode, or let us know your thoughts. Again, reach out to us. And all we would ask, too, is whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could subscribe, that would be great. And leave us a review. That would be even better. And don't forget to use that Manscaped code, CDP. 20 by June 23rd for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. That's right. As always, 
if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And if you find yourself in a situation that's going south fast, get out and tell someone what's going on. You could save a life. And as always, we want you to be safe out there. But let's remember, we also need to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.